This is CyberSound, your simplified and fundamentals-focused source for all things cybersecurity, with your hosts, Jason Pufall and Stephen Mareska. Welcome to CyberSound. I'm your host, Jason Pufall, joined as always by Steve Mareska and Matt Fasaro. Uh, and in particular, so today we have Sherwin Yoder joining us. Uh, he's a partner with Carmody Law and responsible for the privacy and security practice there. Uh, welcome, Sherwin. Thanks, Jason. Nice to be here. Uh, so, you know, today we're going to talk, uh, I think, really specifically about uh, an act in Connecticut, Public Act 21-119, um, which is uh, you know, a, a safe harbor act uh, intended to provide some protections for businesses who have adopted uh, specific security standards. Um, sure, and I, I suspect I'm probably not doing you know, a great job introducing that. So I don't know if you want to add some, some context to that at all or a little bit of background. Sure. I'm happy to. Uh, you did a fine job, by the way, and I'm a big uh, <laughs> I'm not only a guest, I'm a big fan of the CyberSound. We, we appreciate that. that. <laughs> uh, yeah, so no, you accurately described the title and, and, and the public act number 21-119. And it is an act incentivizing the adoption of cybersecurity frameworks. And we'll get into what those might be in a, in a second. But um, Connecticut has taken sort of a piecemeal uh, sectoral approach to encouraging businesses to adopt cybersecurity standards and protect personal information. Uh, and protect infrastructure and so forth. Um, some of the things that they've done uh, include, you know, data breach notification laws, um, comprehensive, you know, written security programs or WISPs uh, required for banks, insurance companies, schools. Um, and here is their sort of first foray into making a generally applicable law to all of business. And instead of laying down a hammer or a stick, uh, they're putting a carrot in front of business. And the carrot is, if you adopt one of these recognized cybersecurity frameworks, you're going to be immune from punitive damages should someone sue you as a business as, uh, for negligence resulting from a data breach or a data breach that results from unreasonable security um, standards. So, and they're not being explicit about what standards you have to adopt. I know they listed you know, a few in the act itself, um, but they're giving companies the latitude to choose a standard that feels right for them. Is that accurate? That is accurate. So there's a, an enumerated list of recognized frameworks, and there are more frameworks out there, quote unquote, than what are listed in a statute, but they do list some very solid and you know popular uh, consensus-driven standards, uh, including those from the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, uh, as well as the Center for Internet Security, which is also a very influential group, uh, and some others um, that we don't need to name here. Um, and they have different origins and, and contexts. Uh, some were surrounding infrastructure, like the NIST cybersecurity framework. Some were surrounding privacy, like the NIST special publication 800-53. And Whatever the background, many of them are of general application. And it's just a matter of a business, you know, with proper proper counseling and advice, figuring out what's the best framework for them. So, you know, one of one of the things that jumped out to me when I when I've read through this is, you know, this this is optional. It, it, no, nobody's mandated to follow twenty one one nineteen, right? It, it it's that safe harbor act. Um, if they adopt a standard, they get certain protections, but they're not required to do it. Correct? 
That's right. It is uh, 100% just incentivizing the adoption of a cybersecurity framework. However, as I think we'll get into this, there are good reasons for adopting uh, these that are in the, in the interest of the business itself. So, so from a protection standpoint, though, do you need to be 100% uh, in compliance, let's say, you know, with, with that standard? Or you know, is, it, is it acceptable to be you know, sort of along a continuum somewhere of adoption of one? Because you know, it could take a couple of years easy for somebody to actually get full compliance with one of these. Do you not get your protections until you're fully in compliant? Do you, can you demonstrate that, hey, we're really on our journey and this, we've made some substantive improvements? I'm curious what that looks like. So obviously in the context of litigation is where that's going to be, that question is going to be, you know, hammered out uh, for lack of a better word. And there probably will be a battle of experts. Yeah. <laughs> right. One expert saying they've, they've complied and another expert saying that they haven't complied. But I think the, the, the background here is reasonableness and that's the general guiding principle um, including, you know, making sure that, that the business understands it's not a one size fits all thing that there's, certain determination about the scope um, and appropriateness of the type of program that you adopt. You know, the program that works for uh, UTC is not going to be the same program that works for, you know, your local, um, you know, deep car dealership or something like that, right? There's going to be varying levels of, of requirements and it's going to come down to what's reasonable for the type of information you process, the size of your business, um, the the nature of the the data that you process and so on. Are, are there appropriateness thresholds or reasonability guidelines that are established in the act? For, for example, driven by particular types of data. The, the, the act does not express about the types of data, um, you know, that drive sensitivity. Um, but you can imagine what this what. A social handling a social security number, if that's something you do on a regular basis in your business, might be different from just handling a date of birth and a name and an address or something like that. Um, so that's just something that the business is going to have to take into consideration. And obviously, the more sensitive the data, the more it's going to have to be, more attention is going to have to be paid to that. So effectively, get, getting back to your earlier comment about the battle of experts, the same would apply in terms of whether a control was reasonably implemented at the litigation side of the equation. Yeah, that's true. Although I, I, I want to bring the reins in a little bit on, on this because it, it, the way we're talking, it seems to be like, it's so subjective. <laughs> right. No one's going to want to sign up for this. Um, and that's just not the case. It's, it really is. It's reasonableness is, is not some elusive standard. Um, it's, there's no gotcha uh, standard there. Um, I think it's really going to come down to whether you were in good faith uh, adopting a program and complying with it. Doesn't mean it doesn't require the statute and the law uh, do not require, you know, 100% um, compliance, just okay. reasonable, you know, compliance with uh, a good faith program that you, that your company has tried to implement. So I, I so I'm actually, I'm really, I'm really glad that you drew us back a little bit because you, as we were talking a little bit earlier, um, you know, one of the things that we are that that we look at twenty twenty two with some optimism is the increased push to mature security programs. Right, we're seeing it with 
cyber liability insurance and some of the requirements that they've got now to sort of improve security programs. Yeah. I think something like 21119 is, again, a you know, step in that right direction of giving people a reason to adopt a security program. We you know, over here at Vancouver deal a lot with incident response, right, on that reactive side. And I really want to see companies do more earlier to protect themselves and, and position themselves to reduce risk. And I think this is a great step that way. And I think, you know, that concept of reasonableness is exactly what people need to hear, right? There's no, there should be no discouragement for, for adopting and, and maturing against the standard. No, that's right. Uh, that's the trend. And it's only going to get more so. I think you put your, your finger on it, Jason. You see it not only um, in security legislation, you know, where legislatures in the state anyway are uh, requiring more and more affirmative uh, security demonstration of security controls, sometimes even uh, annual attestations, for example, for the insurance commissioner, when we're talking about the program of, a, of an insurer or a banking institution has to attest to the banking commissioner. Um, and that trend is just going to continue. You know, um, you mentioned certifications and maturity. You have the, the new you know, defense contractors requirements now as of last December, they're over the next five years, uh, those in the defense supply chain are going to have to certify a certain level of compliance in their cybersecurity uh, model and get, actually get certified. And I do think that some sort of certification you know, or rating is, is going to come down the pike. And we see that with security, we see it with privacy too. You see an increasing number of states passing broader and more comprehensive uh, privacy, um, you know, compliance regimes in California, now in Virginia and Colorado and Connecticut probably will have its consumer privacy bill back on the uh, legislative agenda this, this coming session. So um, anything that the companies can do now to demonstrate that they are serious about cybersecurity and privacy it will serve them later. You mentioned insurance. That's one way. They'll be more attractive for insurance underwriters who are now tightening their belts and uh, um, requiring more in, in terms of applications and questionnaires from, from uh, potential insureds. And just in general, if, you're, if, you're, uh, if you've got a, a good program that fits your risk profile, you're going to you, by definition, you're going to be decreasing your risk level. And if something bad happens, you're going to be decreasing the severity of the thing, of, of that risk. Right. So on, on that front, the, the act mentions the scale and scope of a security program. How would an organization in Connecticut interpret that and determine what's appropriate for that organization? Like what guidance, if any, does the uh, the legislation provide? It, it just provides a, a few general categories or factors to consider of what would be an appropriate scale or scope of your program. So one thing is size, size and complexity. How big is the organization? How complex? How many different types of operations? Um, and how do those in operations interact with one another? Uh, what's the nature and scope of the activities of the business? So is it just uh, you know, manufacturing a product or are you processing lots of, you know, personal information? Um, the nature and scope of the activities is important. The sensitivity of the information, I think we mentioned that before, that it matters what kinds of 
information you're processing, whether it's government, you know, contract uh, data, defense data, or personal information of consumers, uh, there's a, a whole range of sensitivity levels uh, that the business should should map out and, and keep track of and, and assess, you know, appropriate controls, ratcheting those controls up, the more sensitive the data becomes. And then the cost and availability of the tools. So the laws don't require the business to go out and buy the Cadillac of information security uh, tools. Uh, it just has to be something that's reasonable in terms of the revenue of the company, for example, um, and it's overhead or, or whatever all the economic considerations are and just how available uh, those tools are to that particular company. It, I mean, I think it's fair to say, you know, if, I, if I'm really going to boil this down, it, you know, it's better to do something than nothing anyway. And so this is really, this is really an act uh, sort of incentivizing people to start down that, you know, that programmatic security maturity journey and, and making improvements, right? And I, I feel like you're in, right. you're you're in a you're in a better position if you can say, you know, we've we've adopted a standard, or we're making progress against it, versus you know we buried our head in the sand and didn't do anything. So, so if if I'm a business in, in Connecticut, right. right, and I, I feel like we've we've met the standard, um, I want to be protected by this. What, what do they have to do? Uh, you know, typically, uh, when clients come to me to, to ask that question, I'm directing them to to do a cybersecurity assessment, number one, just to get a, a snapshot of, of how their security posture is and to get some professional advice as to what framework to put in place if they don't have one already. Uh, and some may have them already. You know, we mentioned um, some of those frameworks that are listed in the statute. Well, what if, what if I'm already regulated, you know, by uh, HIPAA, for example, right. the Health Insurance, you know, Portability and Accountability Act? or the high tech you know, amendments to that. What, what if I'm regulated by the banking uh, regulations under Graham-Leach-Bliley? Uh, or I'm a, I'm a credit card merchant and I have to comply with PCI DSS, right? The Payment Card Industry Data Security Standard. Uh, wish we could get rid of some of those acronyms. <laughs> uh, yeah, you, you named well, off plenty already, right? <laughs> this statute gives you credit for that. So if you have a good program in place already complying with those regulations, you, you come into the safe harbor. So it may be just a question of getting that assessment and making sure you're documenting your program uh, well enough, you know, to get credit where you called, should you be called upon down the road to demonstrate that. I, I think that we find we have many customers that don't necessarily fall under any of those requirements explicitly, but still want to, you know, improve their overall organizational security. Well, and we, we certainly have conversations where, you know, customers don't know what standard is right to choose and where there mm -hmm. are options on that front. Uh, what, what are the common components that are worthy of the most prioritized effort in your opinion? Oh boy. <laughs> uh, well, first of all, let me say that it's, it's not truly, if, if you don't have to comply with a particular regulatory framework, it's not really a legal question as to which cybersecurity framework to choose. Oh, That's why I referred to the, the getting some professional right. advice on that. That would come from folks like you at Vancord um, or whoever your your technology advisor uh, might be, you know, assuming that they have the correct credentials for that. Um, so that's, that's the, the place to start in terms of which framework to use. In terms of, uh, it may... 
are you asking me um, what shortcomings I see most often um, in security programs of, of clients or are you asking something different? I'm, I want to make sure I answer your question. I, I think that's a reasonable thing to cover, certainly. But I, like, for example, when you talked about um, mapping out data that an organization needs to protect, I, I'm certainly immediately thinking about data governance and data classification as immediate tasks that are almost certainly required under most of these frameworks. Um, what, what are the commonalities? I got, I got you. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. So yes, data mapping and inventory, you know, taking an inventory of your systems and where your data resides and what kind of data you have, that's definitely the first step. Um, and that's a worthy exercise to go through even you know, without uh, necessarily engaging somebody right away uh, on the outside. Uh, assuming you have some some folks who can, you know, think through those things with you. Uh, so yeah, data mapping is is critical. Uh, that could be as simple as a spreadsheet. You know, making a spreadsheet to identify your systems and who's what what data passes through there. You know, um, is it in the cloud? Is it here on premise? Um, uh, who has access to it in our organization? You know, you want to make sure you have visibility on those on your on your systems and the data that they process and who has access to it. And that will serve you for being able to figure out, you know, from that point, where are my risks or where to focus my, my risk analysis. So are there any guidelines in the bill? <clears throat> I, it seems like a lot of this is going to be based on you being able to prove that you're, you're meeting these frameworks. How often do they need to do it? Right. Is this something that needs to be done every single year, every six months, every two years? What's, what's the guidance there? Uh, two things I would say to that. One, there is a built-in, um, you know, deadline, so to speak, or or incentive to keep up with the program, and that is, if the, the safe harbor goes away, if you are not up to within six months of you know the last amendment to whatever cybersecurity framework uh, that you're following. So, if there was a change to the NIST cybersecurity framework, and that's the one that you're keying off of, uh, and you don't implement that within six months from you know the uh, publication of that uh, revision to the framework, then you might fall out of compliance with the cyber with the the safe harbor. Um, the other thing is, so, so you want to stay up to, and that applies to all the frameworks, even HIPAA. If you're a HIPAA compliant or Gramm-Leach Bliley or whatever it might be, PCI DSS. Six months is is the key. So that's that's pretty aggressive. Yeah, that is aggressive. Um, it requires sure. the business. Yeah, <laughs> it requires you to stay in on top of the publications. You know, so query how you do that, and then also to be able to be agile enough to get those changes implemented within six months, which can be a challenge. In yeah, I'm just wondering about the the documentation for for actually testing that stuff. Does that have to be dated back a certain amount, or what's the what's the threshold there? So let's let's say I, I go through a, a certification with a you know a company like Vancor and I say you know hey now we're NIST certified. Um, if we did that a year ago, are we still covered? So with, with NIST, there's no uh, certification requirement, right? So if you adopted a cybersecurity framework that includes attestation or certification, uh, we didn't mention this one, but you know for example the. ISO 2700 series, you know, that's the International Organization of, for Standardization. Um, and that has a cybersecurity and privacy uh, framework 
which does require, you know, a fair amount of assessments and preparation for an audit. And then the audit uh, produces that certification, um, which has to be renewed every every so no, X number of years, year or years. Uh, and I don't know that off the top of my head, but um, the other frameworks don't really require that. Um, so, I mean, it's a good question, right? <laughs> um, but I think it's really a matter of, of implementing and maintaining your program in good faith so that if down the road you were called upon to demonstrate either by a regulator or in litigation, you know, in a lawsuit, uh, you'd be able to demonstrate at that point in time that, hey, uh, when this bad thing happened, we were within six months of the uh, most recent amendment. So uh, you were were kind of nearing our time here, but there is something I wanted to touch on briefly or actually Sherman was going to ask you to touch on a little bit, which is, you know, we we really focused this discussion on a, you know a, a Connecticut Act, right? Uh, and and you know, frankly, I'm I'm proud to be in a state that actually does something to incentivize uh, adoption mm-hmm. of a standard like this. Um, but we're not the only ones. You, you know, I, I know at least Massachusetts has a has a, a privacy act. I think that's not dissimilar. Uh, probably a couple other states. So I'm curious, you know, can you spend a, a minute or two on other states that have done something similar or, you know, maybe is there, if, if a business in Connecticut, you know, has di- divisions or something like that in other states, you know, are there things that they need to be mindful of relative to that? Certainly. Um, I know of only two other states that are adopting this approach, this incentive approach, you know, creating a safe harbor for companies that establish a written cybersecurity framework, one of those recognized frameworks. And those would be um, Utah and Ohio. Uh, But in those states, the law goes a little further than Connecticut's law. So in those states, they actually create an affirmative, what's called an affirmative defense to a data breach lawsuit. So that they're not only protecting businesses against punitive damages, but businesses within the safe harbor actually have an affirmative defense to all damages, um, to basically to suit. So it's a very powerful tool. Um, You know, the caveat, of course, with these, including the Connecticut statute, is that we're talking about negligence, what's reasonable or unreasonable. If you do something, if you have a cybersecurity framework and you do something unreasonable, I mean, like reckless, (laughs) uh, you you waited way too long to, to take action on something that your framework said to do, you know, you're not going to get the benefit of the safe safe harbor there. Those are caveats, you know, or carve outs from the safe harbor would be reckless or gross negligence. um, You know, that type of language you see in the statutes, the other States um, really don't have anything like this. There are some States again, you know, uh, like California, Massachusetts, you mentioned where they might, uh, put down the hammer, so to speak, like requiring businesses to have a written information security program and to have a, a, a sort of minimal level of security, but it's not defined off of a cybersecurity framework. So it's a little more right. uh, nebulous, I guess, for lack of a better word, and businesses are are, are being told what to do, not necessarily how to do it. Uh, but you know, another good example, at least, of moving in the right direction you know, to to sort of encourage people to adopt these standards, which for, for me is is encouraging, and you know, I, I find myself you know, opti- sort of feeling optimistic that we'll see some some more proactive changes in this space. Uh, the 
so, so I'd like I mean, I'd like to wrap up I think here quickly. Um, it's a re- it's a really interesting opportunity for Connecticut businesses to you know improve their security program uh, and you know it, it kind of reduce business risk and and maybe you know some legal risk as well. Uh, so I appreciate you coming on, spending some time discussing this. Uh, hopefully, you know, hopefully people who listen have a much better understanding of uh, sort of what this thing intends to be and how they can comply with it. But uh, you know, as always, you know, we ask people to, to reach out to us on LinkedIn at Vancourt or Twitter at Vancourt Security. Uh, Sherwin, if we get some inquiries here and want to have you as a follow-up, uh, hopefully you'd join again and provide some additional clarity if people want to. Uh, I'm happy to respond to queries. I don't ignore emails. <laughs> people are, are welcome to email me, S. Yoder, that's S-Y-O-D-E-R, at karmadylaw.com. If you just go to karmadylaw.com, you'll find the directory there for my contact information as well. I am on LinkedIn, Sherwin Yoder, and uh, welcome inquiries or questions. And thanks again for having me. It's a, it's a, it's it's fun to talk about this stuff, and uh, especially with people who care. No, I mean we uh, we appreciate you joining for sure. And, and actually, uh, honestly, I'm looking forward to uh, finding more opportunities to bring you on because I think it's been it's been great, and I have no doubt people will get a lot of value out of this. So thanks for joining. Uh, I appreciate it, Sherwin. Thank you, guys. All right. Matt, Steve, uh, thanks again, as always. Uh, And thanks, everybody listening. Uh, Hopefully, you got some value out of this, and we'll be looking forward to comments going forward. Thanks. Stay vigilant. Stay resilient. This has been CyberSound.